as long as I'm true to myself, then hopefully uh, that benefits other people. And that's ideally it's a symbiotic relationship and something I want to keep doing. And, and again, I've, I've got to find ways to tweak it. And it's all about right now, like tweaking that and finding things that keep me fueled to push boundaries that I find they're still like left there for me to explore. And then other times just be content. It's a funky balance for sure. Like it's hard to not have that, uh, that drive of having that competitive spirit, but at the same time, like, yeah, there's still, it's still there once in a while and appreciating it and, and fueling it a little bit, but overwhelmingly, yeah, there's, there's not going to be as much drive and that's okay. That's Scott Jurek. And this is episode 69 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Morning Shakeout listeners, it's your host, Mario Fraioli, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. This week's guest is Scott Jurek, and he hardly needs an introduction, especially if you're a fan of trail and ultra running, so I'm going to keep this as short as I possibly can. Scott's won pretty much every major ultra race there is to win, including the Spartathlon, the Hard Rock 100, Badwater 135, and the Western States Endurance Run, a record seven straight times. He's also set the speed record on the Appalachian Trail in 2015, completing it in a little over 46 days. And in 2010, he set a U.S. record for the 24-hour run, covering 165.7 miles. Both of those records have since been broken, but Scott's overall running resume is one that isn't likely to be matched anytime soon. Scott's also a best-selling author. He's written two books, Eat and Run, and most recently, North, which chronicled his 2015 AT adventure. And he's also a husband to his wife, Jenny, and father of two young children, Raven and Evergreen. We recorded this conversation a couple weeks back alongside a trail in Boulder, Colorado, where Scott lives, and we covered all kinds of good stuff from being back at Western States last month after 10 years away from the event to how the sport of ultra running has evolved over the past several years to using running as a way to give back to other people and organizations that he cares about, making the sport accessible to more people and knocking down the barriers to entry, over training and the importance of rest along those lines, how long it took him to physically and emotionally recover from his Appalachian Trail FKT and a lot more. I love this one. I know you'll enjoy it too. So let's get right to it with Scott Jurek. It's very authentic. This is only the second <laughs> podcast that I've recorded outdoors. And I think it makes a lot of sense that you and I are, are talking on a trail or off to the side of a trail <laughs> in Boulder, Colorado, where you live. So why don't we roll right into it? Scott Jurek, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you for having me, Mario. It's great to, great to be on. Great to be outside here. I saw you about two weeks ago. It'll be two weeks this Friday at Western States in passing and when we set this up. And for you, that was your first time back to Western States in 10 years. What was that like for you? It was good to be back. I mean, it's one of those things where it was a race that was such a big part of my career, a big part of, you know, the peak years when I was racing. And it was a race that I focused on for so many years, too. So being back in that environment, you know, 10 years later and 20 years from my first uh, first win back in 1999, it was definitely special. And it was kind of fun. I just enjoyed it. I walked on down. I 
stayed up late the first night I got there because I came in really late and I was uh, up late and I walked down to the start line where there's nobody around. I think there was one security guard walking around uh, the the village there and it was fun just just to see that time clock, you know, counting down and just remembering what it was like and just kind of like soaking that in. And I think that's that's important to add perspective. I'm a big believer in perspective and, and seeing certain things from different angles and it was definitely a different angle. I wasn't the one, you know, worried or you know, I had that, you know, just excitement of racing, uh, you know, in two days I was there, you know, just able to soak it in from a different angle. Did it feel familiar to you or was it different at all? Oh, it felt like it was just yesterday, even though it was 20 years prior to my first win, it felt like, oh, I, it just brought back all those emotions of just feeling like charged and just kind of remembering what, race morning was like and what it was like to think, okay, I'm setting off on this hundred mile journey, even though, yes, it was a race. I was there to win, compete and push, but it's still anytime I would get to the start line of a hundred miler and much like to this day when I'm doing something big, there's a feeling you can't, it's hard to even describe, but you just know like, whoa, I'm going to do something big. And whoa, I'm running a hundred miles and that doesn't wear off. Like it still feels like this gigantic, this monstrosity of a goal of a, of a experience. And it's, it's pretty cool. Like having those feelings. Was it different though, being there as a non-participant? Well, you're kind of participating. You were supposed to pace Kyle Robidoux, who is a blind athlete who actually didn't have the chance to run with you because he missed an early cutoff, but you obviously weren't there to go the full hundred miles or to try and compete for the win. So I'd love to get inside your headspace a little bit. It definitely was in a different capacity. And I think that's, that's what was nice about it. I I was there instead of for myself, I was there to be a guide for Kyle. And I've been involved with guiding visually impaired athletes and part of the blind community. And it's been something that I've dedicated a lot of time and energy towards. And again, it's, it's all about perspective going in doing something from a different angle. Cause I think like a lot of people I've been competing and racing for so many years, as well as running for so many years, it's nice to do something different. So being a part of Kyle's team and guiding him and planning on guiding him, there definitely wasn't that pressure, um, a different type of pressure, of course, when you're guiding somebody, um, it was going to be the furthest I've ever guided somebody in a trail race. Um, I've guided on the trails before, but not in that capacity and that duration. So for Kyle it was, you know, a very audacious goal and one that he was hoping to accomplish, but I didn't have that. You know, I just had the pressure of getting them from basically mile, uh, 24 to, uh, about 38, 39 miles, a dusty corner. So again, it was going to be really cool to, to see the course on race day, just from that different perspective and that different angle. But for me, there was no pressure, so to speak of like racing and, and just being able to enjoy meeting people and hanging out you know, at the cliff bar booth the day before the race. And you know, I stayed an extra two hours just because, you know, seeing people in that capacity. And again, in that environment, people were super jazzed. Those who were running and not, I was trying to tell people like, you need to get off your legs <laughs> or off your feet and, and not be standing here, uh, you know, around. But at the same time, it was, it was a wonderful experience for everyone. I think and for me, especially. A couple things I want to dig into there. You mentioned how you have been guiding blind athletes at races for quite a while. And I've seen you do it mostly at marathons. I was mm-hmm. unaware mm-hmm. that you had done any of that in a trail environment. When did you first start guiding blind runners and what attracted you to doing that? I did a little bit. I got involved here 
thanks to Matt Oliva. He was a new transplant to the Denver Boulder area and he was involved with the Achilles International Organization out in New York City who was a friend of a friend and we got introduced and then he moved out here to the Denver area and was like, hey, should get involved. We're starting a local chapter of the Achilles group in Boulder and we're doing a weekly run. And so I got involved doing that and they was like, hey, you know, we need guides for the Boulder Boulder. Would you love to help out, you know, a pretty fast female who I think uh, Luann was in her 40s at that time. And she was a former collegiate runner who had lost her vision uh, later in life. And that's how I got started. It was just doing the Boulder Boulder and guiding her and guiding at the, the local weekly meetups here. And then as I started to do a little bit of that, I got in touch with somebody at Team with a Vision uh, who was, I was out in the Boston area like, hey, if you're out in Boston sometime, you know, you should come and guide. We have a you know big group of athletes, you know, 30 some, I think maybe 40 runners that were a part of Team with Vision with the Boston Marathon. And Josh, I forget his last name, uh, just kind of sent me a direct message on Twitter. It was like, hey, we should, we'd love to have you at Boston sometime. I'm like, well, I'm actually coming out this year with Cliff Bar and got connected with Thomas Ponick um, and ended up guiding him for the full 26.2 miles that year in 2015 before I did the Appalachian Trail. So it was, yeah, just kind of this one thing. I was like, oh, this is something that seems like a great cause to be involved with as well as be able to fuel my passion for running and again, see it from a different perspective. And that's, I'd recommend a lot of people. There's a lot of people who've been running for so many years who need maybe just something to, to get them excited again about running. And at the same time, you're giving back, you're helping somebody. And a lot of times you're receiving a lot too. And having a mother who is losing gradually her vision and with MS, um, it's something that I never really thought about until Matt reached out and said, Hey, get involved with Achilles International. And I'd recommend to a lot of people that you want to get involved. There's a great website called United in Stride and Kyle Robidoux, who you mentioned earlier at Western States, who is running, he helps organize that along with uh, my friend's Richard Hunter, who's another visually impaired runner. It's a way to connect visually um, impaired athletes as well as just ordinary everyday exercisers who want to go for a walk or a run and connect them with a sighted guide in their local community. And even if you live you know, half hour away, like once a week, getting these individuals um, an opportunity to have a sighted guide for a walk or a run. And you could be at any level. It's not just fast runners. I love that. And what I love about it is you were a very competitive athlete for a long time in ultra running and you still have that competitive competitiveness in you. And I certainly want to talk about that, but you've given a lot back in recent years through guiding blind athletes and through other means. When did that switch flip for you? Uh, when you realized running is not just a competitive pursuit for me, but it's a way that I can give back to other people. Uh, for me, I've always definitely had this from giving free talks and, and being involved in the community. I've always had this uh, passion. Not as many runners might, and I used to be this shy, introverted type uh, individual, although you, you don't have to um, be introverted to not be as socially involved. But I was always, I got in, out of that shell through running and meeting people. And so I was out speaking in the community, uh, volunteering with local running groups or, you know, school cross country and track groups. So I, I got involved doing a lot of that stuff throughout the years. But then as I've, you know, over the years had uh, a platform to be able to share 
some of my passions and some of the nonprofit work, I just have become less, um, I guess, focused on one nonprofit group. I kind of tend to be, I call it an equal opportunist when it comes to spread nonprofit work. Yeah, just spread myself out. And that's something that I feel just in my nature that I've done. But then focusing on certain things like guiding with the, the visually impaired community, um, these are just things that, hey, this is a great way to blend passions, uh, much like I've done some work with Every Mother Counts and maternal health and some of that stemming from Jenny and my experiences in trying to raise a family and miscarriages and just maternal health has been something that we've been involved. So being able to combine raising awareness, raising funds through running has been a great vehicle and much like guiding. And it's just finding a way to blend those passions um, and the things that feel right. And I feel like everyone has an opportunity. There's there's so much great work out there in nonprofit work. So rather than just focus on one, sometimes Jenny jokes like, oh, you should start a, a nonprofit or an organization. But I just feel like there's a lot of people already doing great stuff. And I just plug myself in when it feels right. And again, I, I just kind of feel like that's important to do. And it, especially people can get burnt out. Um, doing what we're doing and running sometimes just, I know if I have friends where they have stopped running altogether and they don't want to go around it because whether it's injuries or other things, they just kind of feel like, oh, I can't do what I used to do. And I feel like that's, um, you know, everyone's got their reasons, but I feel like that's a shame when you can't, you know, still connect with something that you, was a, such a big part of you. Let's put a pin in that. I want to come back <laughs> to it. But for now, we'll go back to Western states and just the competitive state of ultra running right now. I mean, this year, saw another course record, second year in a row, three guys under 15 hours at Western states. I mean, this is a race that you dominated year in and year out. What are your impressions on the state of the sport right now? Well, there's no doubt it's getting faster. And I think it's always, you know, it's had that evolution. There have been fast guys and gals coming from the roads or coming from like, say a faster background. And even when I was running, I ran into a good buddy, Rich Hanna, who was like, remember when I, yeah, that year and he was a hundred K world champion. He was on multiple hundred K road, uh, championship teams and a guy that could run, I think he ran 217, 218, uh, maybe even faster 214. He was a fast road guy who, you know, stepped into the ring on the trail races. And he's like, yeah, the last time I ran this, you know, nearly killed myself because I was trying to chase you. But we've had that happening. And now we just see um, guys and gals who are so focused on getting things right and coming with these backgrounds of, you know, sub four minute milers and some crazy speed. And they have a passion to figure out the trail ultra thing. And definitely, yeah, we've seen that happen, but maybe in terms of sheer numbers and depth and then actually guys and gals that are finishing, we, you just don't, you don't typically see too many finishers at Western States in the top 10 break 16, for instance. And this year you had three breaking 15. So you're seeing more and more depth of people racing for that second, third, fourth, fifth position. Um, and some years it would just be, it seemed like, okay, somebody would take it out from the front and run away with it and post this crazy time. And now where you're seeing a battle, which I love to see, because back in my day, there was like a battle for always, you know, that fourth or fifth position. And right. now you just, again, you're seeing people who have this diverse and very fast background wanting to do amazing stuff on the trail. So it's, it's pretty cool and pretty exciting, I think. There are some people who have been in the sport for a long time who don't like seeing it get more competitive and feel that it takes away from the spirit of the sport. Does that worry you at all as someone who's been involved for a long time? 
Um, you know, I, there's a a lot of, (laughs) and I, I like to think of myself as like, you know, I'm a, I'm definitely been around for a while, not as old as maybe people have been around the sport for 30, 40, 50 years. And it's always been competitive. I mean, anytime you put a time clock on something, you put a race bib on people, it's a race. So it's going to have that competitive element. Um, so to say that, oh, I don't like it as competitive. Well, at its core, the sport is the same. Yes, races are filling more. It's harder to get into them. Uh, there are deeper, deeper, you know, fields with I, not necessarily deeper fields. We've always had deep fields at some of these races, um, but you just see really fast backgrounds. And yes, maybe some people coming in and saying, "Well, sponsorship is changing the sport, and there's more money." And you know, what about drug testing and all these other aspects that the sh- the sport's going to have to evolve and and shake out with. But at its core, it's still the same sport. So I don't ever want to be one of these, you know, older guys or like, oh, yeah, gosh, the sport is, you know, and being like a curmudgeon about it because it's going to evolve. It's going to change. There's going to be some money. Um, You know, race directors have been making money for a while. Like the sport did maybe have an overall real, I guess, deep uh, pureness to it when you didn't have any money. And Western States doesn't have prize money. I mean, there's some advantages maybe for somebody from a sponsorship and endorsement standpoint to win that race, much like when I was winning it. But I don't know, is it, is the sport changing or is it just having to deal with some growing pains? And I think that's where the state of the sport is right now. And I think for me, I like evolution and change is going to have to occur. Um, Yeah, it needs to occur. It's going to, we're not going to, unfortunately, you're not going to see a race like Western States have a thousand people or two. Like I'm a big fan of get more people out there, um, give people an opportunity to experience these races. However, we do have permits, land use issues, um, uh, dealing with bureaucracy and some of those uh, hurdles you just can't clear. It's just not going to happen here in the U S it is a bummer that when I talk to people the day before Western States, like now I've waited seven years, eight years, or I've waited to get into the race. And that's an unfortunate thing. Like I wish it was like the old days where (laughs) if you signed up, there was a pretty good chance you'd get in. There wasn't, you know, thousands and thousands of people vying for those 400 spots. Um, so that's the part that is tricky. And that's why we've seen an explosion of the race. Numbers grow. So you have more opportunities. People don't have to travel to California or the East coast. Um, there's a hundred in every state, I believe now at this point, um, sometimes several, even in the small states, uh, where there's smaller ultra communities. So again, there's going to be some changes, but by, you know, the experience and at its core, ultra running is still going to be the same. Yeah. And I think it can only get healthier when that happens because, more people are out participating, especially women. And I think more can be done to get more females involved in the sport and help them realize like, yes, this is something that you can pursue if you want to do it uh, and creating a lot of, of those opportunities. And I think that's been, you know, aside from being someone who's a fan of the competitive side of the sport and seeing that really evolve, but seeing that other side of it grow as well from a participatory standpoint, just creating more opportunities for people who want to take on these challenges. Definitely. And then we've seen, I think ultra running did lead the charge. You did see that in the half marathon and the marathon for a while, but ultra running would sometimes you'd see these races be 50% women. And I'm talking about 50 K is not like the Western States. Unfortunately, that world there's talk of like, well, you should maybe set a percentage for women or you're going to end up with a situation where it is pretty skewed right now. I forget. I think it was maybe 30 
30-some percent, somebody was saying, women's field. Like, it still seems it, way too low. It wasn't more than 40, but yeah, yeah it way was too low. low compared to, say, your local 50K or, or say, even a larger 50K that doesn't have um, some huge hurdles to get in. And I'm not sure if, okay, maybe less women are actually entering, qualifying, or the standards. I think, again, those things sometimes need to be shaked out and, and determined over the years. But um, you do see that, and I think ultra running did lead the charge where women were competing with the men, and you don't obviously see that as much. And the marathon, there's still a big uh, time gap, but it was pretty cool to see women, you know, cracking the top 10. <laughs> You'd see that happening and the numbers of a 50K or something that could be, you know, 40, 50% women. And that is, um, again, exciting and it shouldn't be. The other thing I think in our sport too is the accessibility. Um, ultra running tends to be the sport for, it just seems like, oh, uh, say that demographic that can afford to run. And I believe that running is something that anybody has access to but ultra running has been supposedly from the research and when you look at demographics and polls online or things that say ultra running magazine has done it's a sport where unfortunately it does come middle upper class and sometimes i'm like well why is that happening i used to have buddies that would work under heavy equipment all day long and run on the weekends yeah and do it races. wasn't that way for a long time it definitely had a, a more of an eclectic eclectic vibe whereas now it seems like oh it's maybe a little bit more wealthier and it shouldn't be again you do have to have time um that's why i think we're one barrier for women raising families and um men raising families you know it's a luxury to be able to go out and train for four hours for some of these races but i had buddies who didn't train as much and they just ran 100 milers of the races that they wanted to do so i think there's you know maybe sometimes a mentality of like oh i have to train so much in order to experience that ultra and i'm a big fan of people as long as you're staying healthy and you know do you do the right things going out there and doing these races without feeling like, okay, I have to have all this free time. And that's maybe something that's changing at the top too. Everyone has a coach now. Um, the elite runners uh, seem to feel like, okay, I've got to go professional. And I think that's maybe why we're seeing so many injuries, so much burnout is it's actually better when, when I had to work a 40, 50 hour a week job and still train like I was a professional athlete. To stay along that line for a little bit, I have this armchair quarterback theory that ultra running in many ways is the new triathlon and my wife is a competitive age group triathlete i've never done one myself but i've been around the sport for a while and observed it and what i see happening in ultra running now mirrors a lot of what i've seen happen in triathlon in recent years to your point that you just made more of the the top athletes are seeking sponsorship chip and trying to find a way to make a living as a professional athlete and not have to have another job they're hiring coaches um there's qualification standards for these different races there's all this equipment now that back in the day you probably hacked together just to get your way through but now it's become commercialized and everyone feels like i need the latest pack and the latest shoes and the gaiters and the high socks and like these shorts with million pockets and poles and you know blah 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 and it, it's like those things do heighten the barrier to entry and they they or at least seemingly do from you know the outside side looking in and I wouldn't say that worries me too much, but it is interesting to see sort of like the parallels between the sport because triathlon is also another one of those sports where the barrier to entry is is high and it can cost a lot of money and it can take a lot of time and it's still this sort of like, you know, fringe thing. And not that I, you know, not that that worries me about, about ultra running, but I would love to see the sport just become more accessible because mm -hmm. I think it's 
I think it's great. Um, and I, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from it. And I think it can, you know, it can be a positive thing for many people's lives. But I do worry about the outside perception being that, oh, I don't have enough money to do that, or I don't have enough time, or there just isn't the opportunity for me for whatever reason. Definitely. And it's, I've, I've used that analogy a lot with, you know, triathlon for sure. I mean, there's, there's some definite differences. I mean, you do have a lot more commercially, um, (laughs) I guess a, a lot of commercial opportunity with gear because, you know, triathlon, you have the bike, you have these very expensive items and ultra running, and maybe I'm also part of that because I have worked with companies like Brooks for so many years and developing, you know, shoes. But again, we're talking one piece of equipment. If you if you only really want to have one piece of equipment, you need to have shoes. Put shoes on your feet. Yeah. Or, you know, if you want to go barefoot, you're going to move a lot slower, which, you know, some people do or go uh, sandals. But when it comes to trail running and ultras, for the most part, you, know, you just need a pair of shoes. And there's a lot of great road events, too. So that barrier... I think so many people feel like I got to do a mountain trail race or I've got to do one out in the woods or something like that. But there are great road ultras too. the ultra. I've been a big fan of the history and the historical significance of the races like the 24 hour, the 100K road races, even though I, again, it wasn't my first passion. I'd rather be in the woods or mountains, but there's some opportunity there that you don't have to be, you know, have all this gear for the trails. Yes. I designed packs for ultimate direction. Then part of that, like, oh yeah, I need the latest and greatest vest. But I think those are some of the cool, you don't need that stuff, but um, it's nice to have. It makes the sport maybe a little easier. We're out in nature, everybody. So there's <laughs> going to be some background noise. It happens to be a truck several hundred feet below us that's <laughs> passing by and should be good now. And so... Yes, it makes the sport maybe somewhat easier, but the reality is at the end of the day, so I guess my, I think maybe it's an education or maybe it's the messaging that comes across that ultra running, you need all this gear and you've got to have the latest shoes. Um, but at the end of the day, you just, you need a pair and you can, you can pick up a pair on closeout. Like you really don't need a lot of high tech. I mean, I used to run in a, a cotton poly t-shirt for many years, you know, again, before being sponsored or a single, like, and you don't really need a lot of fancy stuff. Um, you can have a handheld water bottle that you made out of your, your own, like what we used to cobble together, uh, back in the day. So there's not a lot of expensive stuff. And I think it's about where you spend your time, where you spend your money. And as a new parent, I'm always like, okay, yeah, I don't have enough. We're always like wanting more time, just people in general. And when you're a new parent, you're definitely like you see where time goes but at the same time it's like yeah I could spend a little less time doing x y and z and now I have time so the barrier I think isn't about money or time it's more about you know where do you want to put that time and money if you want to spend you know a hundred dollars on trail running shoes most people can figure a way to do that um and so it's it again it's like what are priorities in life and then maybe what the messaging is maybe some people feel yeah. like oh if i don't show up with all the gear and the latest i think that's just maybe the sport wanting to get more refined and seem techy and and want to feel but at the core again it's it's such a primal and such a natural activity that you really don't need much. Yeah. And I think that's the message that just needs to get out more, especially in this social media age that we live in, because you scroll through your feed and you see, oh, well, ultra running is, I mean, we are on top of a mountain right now, but it's like ultra running is on top of, you know, this beautiful mountain somewhere. And if you don't have that, then you can't be an ultra runner. But to your point, like, it's been great to see the resurgence of, you know, people chasing hundred K world record Mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. you know, 24 hour type records, because that is like, 
that is the history of, of the sport that goes back, you know, a long time. And it's, you know, it's realizing like it can be what you want it to be. It doesn't have to be just what you see on your, on your social media feed. Exactly. Much like on the Appalachian trail, there's an old saying for through hiking, like, you know, hike your own hike. Everyone's got their own ambitions. You know, some people yellow blaze, some people, you know, slack pack, some people do all these different things that are frowned upon, you know, it's like be true to the through in terms of being true to the through hike is a saying. And people, there are the purists are like, Oh, you should never do any of these things. You should you know, carry your pack the whole time. But again, it's, it's however you want to do it. And I think with the run and ultra running, it's like run your own run and figure out what is it for you? What's the sport? Some people don't need to go to race. Another barrier for some people is like the race entry fee. Um, and I was a big, when I got into trail running, I'd show up at the local Northern Minnesota track club races in, oh, in the Duluth area. And it would be at these ski hill areas and like makeshift kind of like trails that would connect, um, old dirt bike trails. And every week was at a different location. It was a buck to basically sign your name on a sheet. And we do see there's like just all kinds of different local runs like that where the barrier to trail running or ultra running can be pretty simple. And if you don't want to enter a race, um, you know, pick a route. If you want to run that 30 mile section of trail, or if even on the roads, we talked about roads. I'm, I love being in cities sometimes and exploring them. I've run around Manhattan, uh, just as a run and like run your own 50 K there's routes that you might want to just take a bus out of town or get dropped off somewhere and be like, I'm going to do that 50 mile route or that 40 is something like you look towards as a goal, like a race. So it doesn't have to be this formal, Oh, I've got to show up at a starting line. I've got to wear a race bib. I love that. And we're certainly seeing more and more of it. I see with a lot of the athletes that I coach who are competitive and are competing in the upper echelon of the sport. But I've had more and more of them recently say, Hey, you know what I really want to do this year? I want to go up to Lake Tahoe and do the TRT unsupported just because I want to do it. Not even necessarily chase like an FKT or I want to start, you know, in Marin County and run all the way down, you know, the peninsula along the skyline trail just to see what it's like. And I think that's cool. I mean, and that's to your point, run your, you know, kind of run your own run. You can make it what you want to be. It doesn't have to be a race. So it can be. Uh, and that's great. And it's like it, there, there are a lot of, you know, different touch points and entry points really to, to the sport of ultra. Definitely. Running. And that's, that's what I love, but I love reading the, the old stuff from the seventies and eighties. And I just am one of these individuals who kind of like geeks out about the old history stuff, which you don't like nowadays with social media and the internet, everyone thinks the last 10 years sure. or the last five years or the last year is really more history, but uh, it's fun to read, you know, stuff. I'm a big fan of James Shapiro's old work and he called it the journey run. And he was all, he described, you know, getting, taking a bus somewhere or a train and getting dropped off or he'd take his, he and his buddies would plan this route from, cause he lived in Manhattan and found our Ted Corbett when I, got to hang out with Ted Corbett the, the few times that I did, you know, he would talk about these runs that he would do, you know, commuting or going. And then again, I love that phrase of the journey run. It's just, it's a so journey cool. and you just go and do things and it doesn't have to be so formalized. It doesn't have to be. It's and that's what I love about the sport at the end of the day. Yes. The races, the winning, it was, it was great. Cause you have to have goals so much like being on the Appalachian trail. I would never have pushed my mind and body as far or on Western States. I would never have run that hard in 103 degree heat, um, to break records or to break my previous performance if I didn't have that goal looming out there. So I think it's good to have goals. Um, but sometimes that goal can just be, Hey, I want to run from here to there and having no priorities with time. And well, you can have both and taking the competitive side out of it or these organized types of things like what is, is running. It's a, it's a means of locomotion. It's a means of, of transport and it's something 
most of us have been doing since we could stand up on two feet. Like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to run across the the playground or I'm going to run home from my friend's house. And I think as, as adults, especially when we get into like the quote unquote sport of it and we're signing up for things, like you lose sight of that. It's all about, well, what do I have to do today for my workout? How long is it? How many miles? How much vert do I need to get? It's like, just get out there and, and move. And, and I think that's a great reminder. It reminds me of, I'm also a history buff and reading back on biographies or autobiographies of great marathoners who I've admired over the years, Bill Rogers, who arguably one of the greatest American marathoners of all time, if not the greatest, he was using running as a way to get home from work. Like, you know, he would go do his training run in the morning, but then he would just like, he'd be in his jeans and he'd be like, yeah, I just love to run. So I ran the mile home. I could have walked it, but I ran because, you know, I loved it. And I, I, I love hearing those types of stories. It's a good reminder of that's what it's all about. Yeah, definitely. And Boston Billy is so cool. I mean, I've had an opportunity to meet him a couple times and he actually called me on the Appalachian Trail and he's just such a good dude. And he just, yeah, he gets it. I feel like he, he just is all about the pure joy and fun and obviously things like Born to Run touched so many people because it, it reminded people of the joy of running and how fun it could be. It wasn't necessarily a, a barefoot Bible per se, but we need these reminders, whether it's coming from individuals or reading about you know, the, the old timers, so to speak, or the people that came before us and what, what was most important because they remind us of what you know, what really is the essence of running and what are we doing? Uh, because I like a lot of people, I didn't enjoy running. It wasn't something that I ever thought I'd be doing for 50 miles, a hundred miles at a shot because somewhere along the lines were like, Oh, this is just a way to get in shape for yeah. some other sport that I love and, and love to be in. Well, that's why history is important in general, even outside of, of running. It'd be <laughs> oh, easy to lose. We could get uh, times <laughs> in here, but for sure history, like easy to lose sight of see, our past. Yeah, definitely. Like if you lose sight of the past and, you know, make the same mistakes, that is one of the things where I think just in general, um, as humans, we, we do need to know history. We need to know, um, not because we want to dwell on the past, but to learn from it and evolve and grow. And yes, we're not going to be the same or we're not trying to replicate things. We're trying to, again, put our own twist on things. And I think that's maybe, yeah, <laughs> what the problem is with the human race in general. Like we've got to correct some serious things like climate change and other things that, um, yeah, if we're not looking at the history and looking at uh, things. And that's what I love about trail running too, is that it connects me with the these wild places where running up and seeing glaciers or seeing snowpack and seeing things that, yeah, there's some definite changes. And if we're not getting outside of our, you know, really tight bubble in our own world, um, we're not as connected. So that's why I love. And again, you don't have to do that breakneck speed. And I feel like sometimes a race environment isn't the best spot. It's the training. And that's what I've enjoyed probably over the years more than anything is I remember those training runs getting ready for these races um, and the things that I did. Yeah, because the races are several hours to maybe several days depending on what you're, <laughs> exactly, what you're doing. Exactly. But it's that process leading up to it that takes most of your time, but that's where you really grow. That's where you really experience things. That's where you really learn. Uh, and I think we can put so much importance on one day we lose sight of that somewhere along the way. Definitely. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank the sponsor for this episode. It's the VCU Health Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia. It's time to start thinking about your fall race schedule, especially if you're considering a half marathon or marathon. And the VCU Health Richmond Marathon Weekend on November 16th is an awesome option on the East Coast. I had a great experience there last year running the half marathon, and I can promise you that you will love this event regardless of what distance you choose to run. Why Richmond? It's a great running town. The event provides amazing course support, enthusiastic spectators, beautiful views of the river, charming neighborhoods, and hopefully perfect fall weather. I can tell you it was 
absolutely ideal last year. If you're running the marathon, one of the best parts about Richmond is that it's mostly flat, super fast, and it ends with a downhill finish on the scenic James River. Richmond was recently named a top 25 Boston qualifier. It's known to produce PRs for runners of all speeds, and Runner's World even dubbed it as America's friendliest marathon. After you cross the finish line, regardless of what event you run, you will be rewarded with plenty of unique finisher swag and an awesome post-race party. So if you're looking for something shorter than the full marathon distance, they've got you covered. You can run the Markel Richmond Half Marathon or even the Richmond 8K, all of which take place on the same day, November 16th, so there are plenty of options. You can use the code MORNINGSHAKEOUT, that's all one word, when you sign up and save 10 bucks on your entry fee. Get in now at richmondmarathon.com and start training today. My thanks to the VCU Health Richmond Marathon for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Now let's get back to the show. I'd like to bring this back to you at this point. Where are you right now in terms of your running, but also just in life? The last big thing that I remember you doing was the AT trail in 2015. You've obviously done other things since and been around and, and haven't gone away, but what's, what's Scott Jarek up to right now in mid 2019? Well, first and foremost, uh, trying to keep my head above water, <laughs> raising two kids and finding a way when you mentioned like getting runs in, like it's all about, especially having a one and a three-year-old, it's, um, like nonstop. So runs entail pushing and workouts. Like you get basically I'm being creative and trying to figure out, okay, how can I maintain 50, 60, sometimes 70 miles a week. I had a buddy rolled through town, Ben Gibbard a couple weeks ago and he got me out for, I ran basically, I think more miles in a 24 hour period than I had before. <laughs> like he was like, he came in late in the evening. We did a four hour run the next morning. We did another five hour run and I hadn't done that in a while. And basically, yeah, I'm trying to maintain like a decent base level fitness so I can do some fun stuff in the mountains this summer. And yeah, just maintain some things, but finally feeling like, okay, I'm ready for another big adventure run. I've had a few things on my to-do list, so to speak, or kind of like my dream list. And they're not necessarily races, but just runs that I want to do. And Jenny's finally game after <laughs> helping on the Appalachian Trail. I've She's just recovered started. as well. Yeah, mentally and physically. And for me too, it was such a not only physical uh, feat, but also mental feat where, yes, I needed something to get me out of that rut of figuring, okay, what am I going to challenge myself with next? Um, you know, I'm 45 now. I'm not going to have my best 100 mile races and I'm okay with that. Like I'm, I just love being out in the mountains and sharing time with my family. But at the same time, there's still a yearning to do a couple more things and something big. Um, so we're hoping next year will be the year we're going to pull that off. Evergreen came along and uh, we were like, wait, we weren't supposed to be able to get pregnant. I thought this wasn't happening. And he came along, uh, was very pleasant surprise, but definitely changed Altered things. Altered the timeline we yeah, We're kind of thinking like, <laughs> oh yeah, we'll get out for another. And then when you have a newborn and like, okay, I don't think we can pull off, uh, yeah, having two kids under the age of two um, while trying to do something big like that, that's going to take, you know, one and a half to two months. And But that's really where my mind and head is at this summer, trying to keep a good fitness. And we're going on a family, we haven't done a big family vacation in a while, so we're going to head to Japan and, and bike for a month and pull the kids and just uh, go on a bike touring just trip. Just pure fun. Just because hauling, that's the one thing I've, Jenny and I, we really miss getting out and doing trail runs in the mountains together, you know, and I might do my own pace and we'd meet up from time to time, but we don't do those 30 mile runs together. They're always separate now. And 
can't haul 60 pounds of kiddo. <laughs> that's one thing. Like I could do. You haven't designed but, a pack uh, yet yeah, that's going to allow you to carry I design your three-year-old? I mean, that basically means putting on two packs, one on the front and one on the back. Um, I definitely do that for some hikes, but um, long backpacking trips, we loved getting out for a week, two weeks on the PCT. Um, we're still like, uh, yeah, we have uh, put that on hiatus the last couple of years and, and figuring a way until they, one of them can walk more miles. But hauling, yeah, 60 pounds of kid weight alone without anything else, we're like, okay, well, bikepacking is going to be it. So we're, we're basically blending some different things and ways that we can get out and still, um, yeah, still do things together and do some big things and trips where you can get big long days without, um, yeah, without the, just the burden of like, okay, we got to haul all these kids and we like to go ultra lightweight, but even that with <laughs> 60 pounds. So that's what we're sorting out and we're excited about that. And I've been doing a lot of work, nonprofit work, work with my sponsors still. Um, and then yeah, figure out a way to yeah, do something big, hopefully next year. Okay. That was my next question. What's the timeline <laughs> look like in terms of the next big adventure? Would yeah, it be before the end of the year or next year, or maybe even two years? Cause these things take time. Yeah. They take time and they take, you know, planning, uh, last time around, everyone assumed that, oh, got all these sponsors. Jenny and I actually just funded the Appalachian Trail and did it on a real shoestring budget. Um, refinanced the house and, you know, maybe spent, I think, $11,000 in total. Like, we did it really on a bare bones um, budget, but... Yeah, we can't keep doing that every couple of years to figure out. So for us, we're, we're, and then with two kids, like we need help taking care of them. So it's definitely going to be a little crea- more creative and we're building out uh, Castle Black, which is our van. And now we have two kids to like fit in there. So it's going to be a little bit more tight and tight quarters. But at the end of the day, Jenny and I are like, you know, we don't want to need to complicate this. We just need to do it our way. And that's, I think the biggest thing for so many people is you don't, way to do these things and when everything aligns and when everything's right. So Jenny and I tend to be those individuals, if they read North and are familiar with our trip on the Appalachian Trail, it wasn't one of these things where we weren't completely prepared. We didn't have everything dialed, but that's what is fun about it too sometimes. I'm not saying be underprepared, but not putting so much emphasis on that. Well, that's life too. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've, to some degree, we've all got to figure it out as, as we go. You can plan really well for something, but inevitably something's going to go awry and you have to adjust. And that's what ultra running has taught me more than anything. Like being adaptable is one of the biggest things I love about the sport, adapting on the fly, being able to adjust to the conditions, uh, what happens with the body. And I think it's definitely made us resilient as far as just life in general and dealing with the adversity that happens. And life has prepared me for ultras. I mean, being able to like dig down and just get really, um, I don't know, just dig down to an area I never thought I would have to. That's come from life experiences as well. So I think it, it goes both ways. Yeah. And as parents too, like <laughs> I thought sleep de- de- deprivation on the AT was something. Uh, it's a whole different thing. level. Whole different different level. <laughs> like, yeah, when you still have a one-year-old that likes to wake up once or twice uh, a night and it goes on for not just two months, it goes on for, you know, a year and a half. So that, that part makes it uh, even more resilient. But I think like it is like life, you have to adjust. And that's, uh, that's what it's all about and, and figuring out a way to maintain. So that's where like career wise and life wise, I'm trying to keep that balance. Uh, so, yeah. You mentioned the Castle Black renovation. That's your van that you used for the AT. Is the renovation in preparation for this next big adventure? 
Well, more than anything, it's just to get the rig ready to do like long trips. Like we've done some trips in it with the kids, but you know, it didn't have paneling. It didn't have insulation, all these things. Like it has a heater now, it has a fan and it has- Wasn't working for a family of four. Yeah. So we, we've got it more comfortable. So yes, there's motivation to get it ready for something else, but also just for general, like, oh, we want to go for a week and, and spend some time in the mountains. And again- not be, you know, so local and, and getting out more and going out and doing little mini uh, speaking tours and getting out to some of these places and, and feeling like, okay, we can take, you know, Castle Black and it's livable or a little bit more livable than just, okay, this is, you know, just me and Jenny and easier to, to manage. Now it's like, okay, it needs to be a little bit more comfortable, have a little bit more <laughs> renovation to it. So yeah, there's motivation on, on a lot of levels and then doing some other smaller projects too, uh, from a running standpoint and just being able and ready to do that. You mentioned how it took you a while to recover physically and mentally slash emotionally after you finished the AT. I mean, it's 46 days that you're out there slogging like up to almost 60 miles a day in some cases. What was or how long did the physical recovery from that effort take you before you felt quote unquote normal again? It it took me, I knew it was going to take a while, but probably six months. And, you know, there was a period like from three months to six months where I thought, oh yeah, I'm back. But then deep down, it just was this feeling like i uh, sounds cliche to say, you know, down to my bones. I could just feel it. It wasn't like I knew like my endocrine system was out of whack, even though I didn't test it, but I'm sure there was, there was a lot of rebuilding. The signs were there. There were a lot of rebuilding. Like I just felt like, oh, my legs, oh, I feel normal, but I don't feel normal. So there was that feeling. I feel like that's where in ultra running, we do see so much overtraining syndrome and people really messing up their bodies semi-permanently or you know, maybe temporarily to the point where they don't come back. And that was something for me. I'm like, Oh, I better be smart here. Um, even though I feel normal, there was still something deep down that wasn't right and getting things back. So I'd say six months. And then even after that, there was this period of just really listening to my body and I'm not having like a big goal. Oh, I've got to go out and do something again. Um, that's one thing mentally I wasn't ready. Like that was such a big thing for me to get through mentally that, I wasn't chomping at the bit to be like, oh yeah, I want to do another one. Even though everyone was like, oh, that was awesome. Like do another one of those things. Like, <laughs> Not that easy. Yeah, like, just, uh, and that's where I think there is some pressure in the racing environment today for individuals to feel like I've got to do something. Not just even at the top level athletes, but just people who have like age group goals or their own personal goals. Like, oh, I got to have something. And there can be sometimes too much of a push there to have that next big goal. And even though I might sound like I'm um, just getting older and more tired, but more of a respect that, Hey, that was, you know, it was three and a half years ago, but at the same time, it's uh, almost four now. Um, it's one of those things I've had to respect just because mentally too, I've got to be ready to do it. Cause if I'm not mentally ready, I was trying to do hundreds at the tail end of my career there thinking like, oh yeah, this is really what I want to do when I'd get out there and be like, eh, don't have the drive. Yeah. Well, just on a very fundamental level, anytime you stress a system, you need to balance that out with rest. But for something like the AT, which in your case was 46 days straight, it's stress, 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 and like little bits of rest when you're laying in the van at night, but it's like certainly not enough within that frame of time to really, you know, recover. So essentially like you had a 46 day stress and it doesn't surprise me that it took oh, six months for you yeah. to just like, you know, start to unwind some of the damage that had been done. Yeah. Not sleeping. I mean, sleeping on the trail sometimes, you know, a couple hours here or an hour there. Like it just, that is not 
good long term for the body. Um, but I knew it would come back. But again, just being smart. And I think that's that's sometimes the hardest thing is like our our brains sometimes or uh, egos are like, oh, we want to go and do I want to go and do something else. Or I want to put keep pushing. And at some point you have to respect both the physical and even the mental side of things like just that that strain, because once you get into that environment or that zone, then you, of course, I'm like anyone else. I'm like, what the hell am I doing out here? Like, why am I doing this to my body? Like, especially when you've been doing it for a lot of years, I have friends where it is hard to stay stoked on it and, and be at, at a certain level when you know where you can be performing, but at the same time, mentally, you're just not there. Yeah. On the mental, emotional side of it, how long did it take you to come back around after the AT? I would say like year, year and a half where I'd even begin to start thinking, okay, I want to do something else or I want to do something. Like I was it just feeling like a contentness too. Like, again, I'm, I've been, I don't know, I've, I've been in the sports so long and I've done so much over the years and I've stretched it out over a lot of years, which I've enjoyed. But at the same time, I don't have this burning desire like, oh, I got to do something else. Like I'm, I'm really feeling good with what I've accomplished as well as not feeling like, oh, I've got to go and break. But there's some part of me like, oh, I'd love to better my 24 hour record. I feel like I didn't focus enough on that. And could I do that, you know, in my forties, uh, I think there's a possibility. So there's some of that, you know, gnawing at me occasionally, but overwhelmingly there's a good feeling of like, you know, it just being out in the mountains and running for three, four or five hours, like that is a joy and not having a race or an objective or a training goal is plenty fine with me right now. So I want to ask if you ever have that feeling of, I want to top that, or I have to top that for myself, if nothing else. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's the good and bad <laughs> feeling, uh, an ease or a contentness, um, because that complacency and it's not even complacency. It's more of a, uh, you know, just feeling satisfied, uh, and happy with where I'm at in life. Uh, it's not to say like, oh, I've done everything I've wanted to do. Like I still have some goals or things like, yeah, I could look back at my career and be like, oh, I didn't win the Ultra Trail Tour de Mont Blanc. That was one thing that I really wanted to do. And I could lament over that and feel like, oh, I'm, all my objectives weren't completed. But at the same time, feeling happy with what I've done, being at an okay spot to still be around the environment and still love running and find ways to fuel that passion has been like more of a fun balancing act and an enjoyable act versus this like coming to terms with aging or coming to terms with not being as competitive. And for me, yeah, it's, but it's also the enemy of like, Oh, feels pretty good right now. Like <laughs> there's not a need of some days of feeling like, Oh, I've got to go and do something big or, Oh, what is that goal going to be? And I guess that's the, the tricky thing. Whereas I get a lot of, you know, maybe even more enjoyment going and speaking and motivating other people and going to events and, and hanging out with my tribe and the people that in the sport that I love. And that's, that's what I guess for me is just as fulfilling than like, okay, I've got to check another box or do something else. Yeah. I think on our own individual levels, we can all relate to that. Not everyone's going to compete at the highest level of the sport and have that be sort of the benchmark that they gauge themselves by. But we all get to that point where it's like, okay, inevitably, like, you know, we're going to slow down. And I think it's really being able to step away from that being like, well, that's not what defined me. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the, it's not necessarily the end results. Like it's the fulfillment that it brings me internally, not 
whatever external validation I get from an award or a record or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, sure. And performance is great too because people or, you know, achievement is great because people do get motivated. Like, would have it as been as fun if I didn't go after the record on the Appalachian Trail for people to, say, follow along or watch it. Um, there's definitely excitement to racing and being at Western States and watching, you know, once Kyle had unfortunately timed out of the race, I got to hang out at Forest Hill and watch the leaders come through and remembering, you know, what it feels like to run down that street in Forest Hill. And, you know, that's inspiring for, for people to see and watch performance and competition at a high level. I mean, that's why I think people get into the sport at one point, they see somebody do something very lofty. And I think in any sport or any career, we do want to aspire to something, say, more grandiose or something bigger than ourselves. And having that around us pushes people to go outside the limits. Because ultra running really at its core is going, you know, the definition of ultra is going beyond. And so for people to go beyond their their perceived, like, limits and their perceived, um, I don't know, envelope of what they think is possible for themselves that's the beauty of the sport and it does help to have some people being like whoa like running you know just a hair over 14 hours at western states and what jim did on that course like that's mind-boggling as well as um it's also very people can just understand that magnitude and i think that's where having that around us is, is pretty good as, as an overall but it not being everything Let's go back to your early days. What was that initial spark of interest in ultra running for you? I think for me, I think for me that initial spark was it seemingly just so far out there, like running 50 miles. I, I hadn't even run a marathon at that point when I decided to run my first ultra that spring. So I signed up for the grandma's marathon and a month later I was running my first 50 miler. Um, I'd never run over three hours, um, in training or anything. And now I was going to be running this 50 miler that was probably going to take me eight hours, nine hours. Um, and I think it was that spark of just the unknown and it seemingly just so big. And of course, like everyone else, after I finished, even though I finished second place and, I guess did pretty decent. I was just like, no way, never again. <laughs> it just was so hard and so grueling and the conditions were just so tough. And so I think that's, I think that's what the real lure, if I get like bat, if I get dig down to the core, it was really that it just seems so far out there. And again, at 20 years old, the last thing you think about most of the time, especially in North Minnesota is like running 50 miles does not seem normal. But I was hanging out with a bunch of people that, it was fairly normal or it wasn't that far out there. And that's what's cool about the sport of ultra running now too, is that it seems approachable, even though maybe there are some barriers. Um, people, it's not so much just like the next thing beyond the marathon. It's actually, it just seems like, oh, that person did it. You know, that person looks like me or that person, you know, has you know, that woman or mother has three children or what, like it just, people look at things and like, oh, whether it's age or that, you know, 70 year old just did that or that person of color. To, like, it's showing people that it's possible and it's not, it's normalized it a bit more, I think, and, and made it more attainable. So for me, it was something so far out there. Has that lure of the exploration of the unknown stood the test of time for you? 
Oh, definitely. And like, I, you know, at the very beginning of the podcast, I talked about that start line of a hundred miler, like it being still like I'm running a hundred miles. Like that doesn't wear off. That, <laughs> that's sheer distance. Like when you're starting from somewhere, whether you're doing loops for a hundred miles or whether you're going from point to point, it's that it's the immensity of the goal and just the objective of going from here to there. And that's what kept me going on the AT. It was like, look where I've, how far I've come. Look, oh, I'm crossing this state line. Or I just did, you know, 59 miles, you know, my, my biggest day. Like that is an allure of itself. And I think that's human nature too, whether it's exploring and putting a person on the moon or doing whatever, like it's, it's having that big goal and being able to, I guess, digest it and somewhat also be really nervous and the fear factor of it. And I think that's, even though, again, we're not risking our lives out there and ultra running for the most part, or we're not, um, there's not a lot of, you know, major fear, but it's more the fear of the unknown and the fear of also failure, the fear of not um, achieving something. And also the fear of like, well, that just seems so far and also seems like so ridiculously painful or there's, there's definitely a lot of um, discomfort and that in and of itself in modern society, um, when we can hop in a car and be somewhere in a matter of minutes or hours or hop on an airplane and be across the country or be able to turn on an air conditioner or a thermostat, like those are comforts that have made us be, I don't know. Soft. Yes, yeah, soft. And not to diss on the human race, but it's made us maybe not... Um, not as maybe not as open to being in a discomforting environment or in an uncomfortable position, and that's what ultra running is all about—about about being uncomfortable well, and forcing yourself into that, and yeah. forcing yourself into it. Yeah, and mentally, when you're like the chair is there, you could sit down or an aid station or you know a car, being like, you know what, I'll just catch a ride back to the start area or wherever the you know finish area. Like, and I'm not going to do it. Like, that's a huge mental hurdle, and I think that's what, again, getting at the core of the sport, that's where it's at. Like, whether we have a decision. We're not being forced. We're not being chased by, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, it'd be cool to bring back, you know, the gladiator type games, like having a saber tooth tiger <laughs> running you down. Like you'd run a lot faster. If, if it was really life threatening, like I'm sure we'd see records uh, broken all the time. Like there's not that trigger, but that's what the beauty of the sport is. There's always that opportunity to stop and not push through. Um, there's opportunities to say, you know, and definitely when there's injury or things like that, yeah, it's smarter to stop. But a lot of times there's, there's value in pushing through those obstacles, those barriers and those, um, some seemingly like just mental, uh, blocks that we put in a way of ourselves. Ultra running gets this reputation as a wholly individual sport. You're out there by yourself, got to propel yourself forward. And to some degree, I mean, that's true. It is on, it is on you to, to keep going and to solve your problems. But, you know, whether it's in races or something like you did with the AT, like having a a team and surrounding yourself with people, you know, is important. How important to you has your team been throughout your career as an ultra runner? And especially, you know, recently, Jenny was your, your team on the AT along with other people who popped in and out, you know, along the way. But I think it's easy to lose sight of, you know, the support networks that we have. Oh, it's true. I think with any goal, whether it's career, family, uh, sport, passion, hobby, you definitely have to have that support network. I mean, yes, at its core existence, ultra running is not a team. sport. everyone likes to assume like, oh, the team is everything. And I think, yes, it's important. Um, at the end of the day, 
yes, those individuals can make a big difference in terms of do you get through a tough situation or not. Again, it's they're like a again a support network they're not so much a team i've definitely done team races for instance like the trail walker uh, 100k where you have to stay together as a group um of four and and that's a definitely that's a true team sport of ultra running or team aspect where you have to stay together but um the support team can be so instrumental yet at the same time you have to learn how to figure things like on the Appalachian Trail for instance I had to trust total strangers and now it wasn't like my my best friends my my buddies that have been around in tough situations now I'm having to trust these total strangers that came out to help from a local trail running club in Maine and I remember when uh, John Rodrigue and then uh, Chris Clemens showed up and that some really critical times where well this is when I need like my, my tight group of friends now I have strangers doing that for me and like are they going to push me through the night and that's a real trust I think it is important to have that that team atmosphere but at the end of the day you have to be able to adapt to different situations and again team is everything but it's not there's a lot of people who show up at races that don't bring their family or friends and they just they run them uh and they do them sometimes with maybe even a stranger that paces on a western states you still could show up at forest hill and go from pacer central so i, I don't want to make it seem like oh you've got to have the supportive family you have to have the supportive friends helping you have to have this big team out there um the beauty of it is you can go solo but i think to your point you do need to respect the fact that, yeah, there are people making sacrifices. There are people around you who are extremely instrumental. Like if I didn't have Jenny out there um, supporting me and telling me like, you know what, you got to stick through this. Like I just spent like uh, two months of my life and, and dedicated that to this um, endeavor. Like we're not just walking it in. So it's important to have that. Um, and if I didn't have her, if she was like, you know what, yeah, let's just go home. Um, maybe I want to push myself. So I think, yes, you have to have people who are understanding what you're trying to accomplish and know when to provide tough love and when to be that shoulder to lean on and be supportive. There, There's individuals, and sometimes that's not a family member. <laughs> so I have friends who are like, oh, I never have you know my significant other pace me or crew for me because that's just not a good recipe. And um, But they're supportive. They're like, hey, yeah, you go and do that. You need to do this. Um, this is your passion. And so there's that give and take, I think. And I've supported Jenny on some of her climbing endeavors uh mentioned about in the in north we talk about where almost died on the, the approach to half dome and going up the climbing route called the death slabs um kind of out in my element but it is that give and take too because i feel like some runners feel like oh yeah it's all about me and i feel like you have to make sure you're supporting your significant other your friends that right. are wanting to do things well and i think that's the takeaway at the end of the day we're all here to i really believe we're all here to help each other out mm -hmm. in different ways whether it's in an official capacity like maybe in an ultra race like as a crew or as a partner or just like someone along the trail who might be struggling like we're there to help yes. each other out and i think as long as we can keep that in mind whatever it is that we're pursuing we'd all be better off exactly and that's where the core of the sport you go back to the beginning of this whole conversation, the core of the sport, it still should be there. Yes, there are the rude individual. Like people say, oh, that's why the sport's changing. And they're so like, they've got their headphones on. They're like totally all about themselves. Um, you have to break out of that for sure. There's definitely individuals that where it's like, oh, we used to think 99% of individuals in the ultra, they're always helpful. They're always, and most of the time there are, but at the core, that's what's so beautiful about it. Like the human uh, capacity to want to help another individual. When I was on the Appalachian Trail, just everyday ordinary people that come out. Yes, maybe they were, you know, 
part of my tribe that they were really, really excited following it and, and such, but they also just wanted to help and be a part of that. And I was giving out energy when my, my buddy Carl was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> you're stopping too much. You're taking too much time. But I was giving them something they were giving me. And like, that's that exchange of energy that desire to help another individual and be a part of that process is one of that's where like pacing and crewing for people it's good to be on the other side of that where you're helping somebody and uh, i think that's where like guiding and some of the other things i've done over the years it's it's good to be on the other side helping somebody because that's what i think it means to be human and that's uh that's a gift and i think not looking i was like oh i you know i was a part of that winning team that was just you want to do it because it was fun and exciting and it's great to be a part of that side too. Last question. Where do you see your role in ultra running today? You're not racing nearly as much as you did at the height of your competitive career, but you're still arguably one of the most recognizable people in the sport. I'd love to get your perspective on that. Oh, I almost feel like you need to ask your listeners or other people out there. Because, like, for me to say, like, oh, you know, where, how do I, yeah, how do I rate myself or where, where do you think I am? Um, well, what do you see as your role? Uh, my role, I think, for me personally, I want to be doing things that get me excited about getting on the trails or out on the roads, uh, running and doing the things that I love while helping foster the community that. I got plugged into and involved. So for me, it's, it's about, yes, maybe using that cliche, giving back, but just being a part of it. And again, finding that perspective of like, okay, I'm not going to maybe be that top runner be, and I'm totally fine with that. So for me, I think it's important for me to, I guess, find a way that I can still enjoy running and enjoy inspiring others and some people it's for me I feel like it's a great gift to be able to have that that platform or that community that is excited about what I have accomplished and be inspired by that and find a way to keep that supercharged and give back and receive accordingly and that's one thing that's been great is like I just some people don't like that. They don't like being out there speaking to people. And Jenny always gives me a hard time. Like I'm the one who hangs out and talks to people, but I had, I had those individuals, not every, it's not for everybody, but that's how I got into the sport because people were willing to, you know, get me inspired and, and charge me up about it. So that's where I feel like there is, yes, maybe a responsibility because I have this following or people have been inspired by what I've done with my career. But at the end of the day, that's who I am. That's what I've, I've been doing regardless, whether I had a huge following or not. I just always felt like this is my community. I, I like hanging out with those people and that exchange of energy. Um, and that's why I probably did the things like have, have people be like, Oh yeah, you want to run with me for, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 miles on the Appalachian trail. Most people don't do that. Um, but that, that's just who I am. It wasn't, I wasn't doing that because, Oh, I feel this obligation or I had to do it. Um, and that's, as long as I'm true to myself, then hopefully, uh, that benefits other people. And that's ideally it's a symbiotic relationship and something I want to keep doing. And, and again, I've, I've got to find ways to tweak it. And it's all about right now, like tweaking that and finding things that keep me fueled to push boundaries that I find they're still like left there for me to explore. And then other times just be content. 
Well, it's, a, it's a funky balance for sure. Like it's hard to not have that, uh, that drive of having that competitive spirit, but at the same time, like, yeah, there's still, it's still there once in a while and uh, appreciating it and, and fueling it a little bit, but overwhelmingly, yeah, there's, there's not going to be as much drive and that's okay. Well, I'm glad that's who you are. You're a great steward for the sport. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for taking me up here on the trail. And we got you a little higher altitude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a little higher altitude. Well, at least at least we're going down now, so I won't be sucking wood. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's always good uh, talking to you, Mario. All right, folks, we did it. Another one in the books. Before we wrap up and head our separate ways, I'd like to once again thank the VCU Health Richmond Marathon for sponsoring this episode. The event, which also includes a half marathon and 8K, takes place in Richmond, Virginia on November 16th. Whatever distance you run, Richmond provides phenomenal course support, great fall scenery, awesome finisher swag, and supportive spectators. I know from my experience running the half marathon there last year that when you run Richmond, you truly get it all. Let me tell you a little bit about the marathon. It's a mostly flat, fast course. It's a top 25 Boston qualifier, and it ends with a beautiful downhill riverfront finish. Runner's World called it America's Friendliest Marathon, and they certainly live up to that distinction. There's plenty to love about Richmond. So start planning your trip today. Use the discount code MORNINGSHAKEOUT, that's all one word, at richmondmarathon.com, and you'll save 10 bucks on your registration. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute, and that really means a lot to me. A big thank you, as always, to my man John Summerford of BearsRecords.com. He takes care of all my audio needs for this show and makes it sound as good as it does week in and week out. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.